Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 63 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I'm starting this episode after being in the house for a while, I record at the McGregor's. I spent some time patting the cat and without thinking, touched my eye. So now I have this really irritated eye. But my life being what it is, this is my time to record the podcast. So here I am at GI and all. So if you're watching me, I apologize for my bleary expression. As always, sometimes I have to really think and rethink and ponder how and what I'm going to say in these different episodes. And initially, season six was just going to be high school and college. And then it became high school, college, and two or three years after college before I moved back home, which made sense. And those were tumultuous times for me. They were also incredibly happy times. I don't look back on those times and only see the bad. I see all of it. If I were going to just stop, you know, stop the season that way, this would be a logical place to stop. But I feel sort of compelled to just have season six be a bit longer and bigger and talk about my younger life as well. This episode, I'm really just going to talk about sort of the first seven years of my life, which were, for all intents and purposes, just incredibly happy because nothing bad had happened to me yet. You know, I often look back at those years. <laughs> I look at pictures of myself and I think, oh, you had no idea what was just around the corner, which I think we all do. I do that a lot with pictures of Molly, pictures, especially just before she died. And I think, oh my God, I didn't realize in that picture that I only had eight weeks left or two weeks or whatever. Episode 63, The Life of Teeny Tiny Barb. So I'm going to start off initially really by saying, you know, I was born in 1963. So according to the years associated with the different generational labels, I am a baby boomer. I was born in the seventh month of 1963. So there's only like a year and a half left. and Now it's Generation X. And I have to say, I really don't identify with the boomer generation. My parents to me are baby boomers. And they were at the very beginning of, of the baby boom chunk of time. It's a long time. A lot of the new, newer generational labels and identifications don't span so many years. And so I don't feel like I'm in the same generation label as my parents, even though I'm only 21 years younger than my mother. And I think because my parents were so young when they had us, that we sort of got lumped into the, to that generation, if that makes sense. I think women had babies younger back then, but I also think, you know, my mother got pregnant in high school. So our family started, you know, really a lot earlier than, than many. 1963, the 60s, for any of you that are history buffs or my age, were a very, very tumultuous time. Coming into the 60s, you know, women and girls still dressed very conservatively and, you know, jackets and suits and dresses and, you know, very, very conservative outfits. And by the end of the 60s, bras were being burned and drugs were being taken and miniskirts were around and huge changes. I talk about, I talk about transitions and I think of the 60s as a hugely transitional decade. The 50s and the 70s have nothing in common, nothing. When you look at just lifestyle and politics and everything, and the 60s were a very tumultuous time of great upheaval. It was also the very, very beginning, this got bigger in the 70s, of equal rights for women, women not being subjected to different treatments simply because they were female. And this lends to so many discussions that remain today. So growing up for me, what I remember most 
of my childhood in general is that my mother was a lot younger than the mothers of all my other friends, a little bit younger than some and a lot younger than most. And so that sometimes I didn't understand. I was a child, so I just looked at grownups as grownups. I didn't really understand the age piece. But in looking back at it now, my mother was sometimes young enough to be the children of my friend's mothers. She was that much younger. What happens with that is also generational expectations. So although I had a relatively structured upbringing and my parents were relatively strict, I never ever felt afraid of my parents. I never ever felt confined by rules and routines and that sort of thing. I always felt like I could do what I wanted. I mean, you know, not ridiculous amounts of doing what I want. But I had a really, really sort of carefree childhood. So the first three years of my life, we lived in this big Victorian, beautiful house on Warren Street. And it was, you know, in need of repair. At the time, I mean, I was zero to three. I don't, didn't have a lot of conscious thoughts about my house, but I remember living in that apartment. I remember visits from my grandparents and a lot of my relatives. My aunt Connie and cousin Dale lived upstairs. It was two apartments. Walked into a living room and then you walked through a big door into like the dining room. And then there were two bedrooms and a bathroom in the back and then the kitchen. My earliest memory is being in the dark, suddenly seeing a light being lifted up out of a crib and being brought into the living room and it was Christmas. So my mother said I was either five months old or a year and five months old. Probably I was a year and five months old. I got a doll. I, I just remember certain things about it. And then my next big memory is we had this little wooden rocking chair, which still exists in my basement. My mother would sit in it and sing to me. And she would sing this song. All I remember the most is, you will wear velvet, little girl. And it was all about the things I would do when I grew up. And I was so comforted when she sang it to me, sitting in my bedroom and she'd sing me to sleep and then put me in the crib. When I was three, my parents bought a home on Essex Street, and that's where I spent the next 20 years of my life. I didn't live in the home for 20 years, but I mean, that was my family home. And Essex Street was not too far from the home that I had previously been living in. It's on the other side of White's Park, right near the park. And so began my childhood as a true child of a neighborhood. I don't know that life was any safer back then. I really don't. We didn't have instant access to news, and so you didn't know about it. I think lots of horrible things could be going on but there wasn't internet. People weren't posting things on social media. You couldn't ask a question of, to your phone and have it answered. Your phone was stuck to a wall. You know, it was just such different times. But I do know that I spent a lot of time playing outside, hours and hours, very unstructured. Set up play dates only happened once you sort of got into elementary school and you knew people that lived far away. And so you would have to call up, have a play date. You know, can I go play at Suzanne's house today? And somebody would have to drive me there or I'd ride my bike. And so that was sort of how your community just sort of grew. When I was three, I wasn't in any sort of preschool activities. I went to preschool and the preschool was right next door to the house I lived in on Warren Street. So my first year of preschool, I lived right next door. And I can remember looking out the window and looking in the windows, seeing a cross and sometimes my mom would wave to me. And that was Mrs. Potter on the corner of Liberty Street and Warren Street. I loved it. I had a really wonderful time at preschool. Again, just good memories games and activities. My favorite TV shows when I was little were Captain Kangaroo and Romper Roman. I don't know if anyone even remembers those shows anymore. They were, you know, your classic PBS sort of kid shows. Captain Kangaroo had a whole cast of characters. I remember mostly Mr. Green Jeans. <laughs> he was a farmer wore overalls that were green. I learned a lot about, you know, education and learning there. Romper Room was a woman named Miss Jean, and there would be singing and a craft activity, you know, classic children's television. I was just ahead of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. Those shows came out when I was maybe five or six. So it's not like I didn't have the chance to watch them, but they weren't on when I was little. They came as I got a bit older. The Electric Company, PBS Channel 2 and Channel 11 
were PBS channels on my TV. And so always, always I watched those channels and watched children's TV like that. Again, TVs too were black and white. Color TVs were like one of the last families in our neighborhood to get a color TV. They were expensive. And I remember when color TVs came, what, wow, you know, they just seemed so bright. When we moved to the neighborhood, initially I met the next door neighbors. And then pretty soon you just meet people in your neighborhood because you get all bundled up and your mom says, all right, go out and play. So you go out and play and you wander around and you find people. And before long, there were probably 15 of us all in like a three to five year age range. We were outside all the time, riding bikes and having parades and playing kick the can and capture the flag and, you know, kickball and all of the things that kids did. There was a little hill between our house and the Vizinas. And in the winter, we could slide down on the sleds. We'd make a big snow bank and get to the top and slide down into the backyard. Hours and hours outside. The other thing I remember a lot about my early childhood was going to White's Park and skating. There was music that came out of the skate house. Everybody went skating. Kids just learned to skate all the time. It would be just packed. I'd put my skates on in the living room where my mom or dad would, and I'd walk up to the park in the skates. It was really an idyllic sort of way to grow up. The neighborhood was a safe place. Just think to my early, early childhood, and it really was the end of a really at-home sort of era where a lot of the family functioning happened at home. Nobody's moms worked. My mother didn't work. So you could pick up the phone and call home in the middle of a school day, and your mom would answer the phone. Somebody would be there. I can remember coming home, and my mother would not be home, and there would be a note that would just say, go to the Cormier's. And so I'd run across the street and have milk and cookies with them. In my early childhood, and actually most of my childhood, you got home from school, you changed out of your school clothes and into play clothes. You had two sets of outfits and school clothes had to last a long time. I don't know if that happened. You know, kids nowadays, school ends and they go to the next activity, someone to watch them or an after school program where you play, but you know, you don't change. So I think school clothes are a bit, a thing of the past. So maybe those are my connections to the boomer generation, you know, these kinds of things. I did well in school. I liked it. But my biggest problem <laughs> from the beginning was my mouth and my, my inability to keep it shut <laughs> or share things that I, I shouldn't. So from very, very early on, kindergarten, I'd get all good grades in my report card. Academically, I was fine. And then when it came to class behavior, it's Barbara moves around too much. Barbara talks too much. You know, she needs to be quiet. She needs to settle down. Always, always the things in my report card that were troubling were behavioral things. I wasn't naughty and I didn't do bad things. Like I didn't eat glue and I didn't break things. But I just had a very hard time being quiet. And I also had a very hard time not asking questions. And I was in an era still where little girls were supposed to be polite and quiet and little boys did not have to be. That never made sense to me. I just didn't understand it or like, I know on the playground, I typically wanted to play the games that the boys played. I liked running around. I liked being active, but it was very divided. And in my early years of school, little girls didn't wear pants to school. They wore dresses. It was a dress or a skirt every day. When I was in kindergarten that January, it's when my mother had Jonathan. And then a year and two months later, when I was in first grade, she had Johanna. So the years of my life leading up to that were it was just Ricky, me, and my parents. And we sat down and had dinner at the kitchen table every night. And, you know, it was a very sort of structured, structured, traditional life. And then Jonathan came along and then Johanna. And so they could have been any baby in the world. It wasn't anything to do with them, but they were little babies. And suddenly our house was incredibly chaotic. And what I didn't know at the time was my parents' relationship was also very chaotic. And so there was sort of an undercurrent of unrest and things began to get tricky. I don't remember so much of that in those early years. It's more like looking back on it now and remembering certain things and thinking, oh, this makes sense now. Things were starting to unravel. 
my earliest memories of anything, like with my mother specifically, would be going for rides in her VW bug. And I was little enough to stand in the front seat. And there were no seatbelt laws then. I could stand and she would drive around with me standing so I could see out. We would go on these beautiful rides. We'd ride out behind the hospital and we'd ride on Fist Road and Little Pond Road. And we'd ride to Huffington under the power lines. We'd go on all these beautiful rides. And what I didn't know at the time was that she was actually actively looking for Tom, my biological dad. This isn't the place for me to talk about that relationship. My mother and Tom's relationship was her story. But in terms of how it related to me, a lot of my early life was focused around him. You know, I didn't know it at the time. I do know that he would come to visit, but I had a wonderful relationship with Uncle Tom's when I called him. He would read to me. He read The Wind in the Willows and all the Winnie the Pooh books and all that poetry. So that comes to mind. My family dynamic, there was mom and dad, Ricky and me, then Jonathan and Johanna. So this big sort of loud you know, chaotic place, our daily routine. And then these sort of, every once in a while, these rides in the car with Uncle Tom or him coming over and reading books to me. I have Hopkinton memories and I didn't know where I was at the time. I ran a half marathon with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago and we ran right by two of the homes that, that Tom lived in when I was a little girl. And I have such strong memories of being in the yard at both of those places, just being outside. He was planting a garden or working in a garden. The big white farmhouse had like a goldfish pond. It was so many fun things to see. And I remember these things. I have very strong memories of them. So my best kindergarten memory, my mother had had Jonathan. I brought her nursing bra in for show and tell. Back then, women you know, wore much more substantial bras than they do now. I just lift up my sports bra and nurse. But there were special shirts that had a panel and you could lift the panel up and there was your bra and the bra would unhook. So you wouldn't have to take your whole bra off to nurse. And I thought this was the most magical thing ever. I was also obsessed with breastfeeding. My mother was a very, very much an earth mother and nursed both Jonathan and Johanna. And I was amazed that milk could come out of there. <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I'd always peek and watch. And so we had a big hamper in the, in the bathroom full of the laundry. And so I took the nursing bra out and brought it for show and tell. And so show and tell, we sat in a circle, you know, chairs, not on the floor. And the person doing show and tell went into the middle and showed. And so I put it on and I explained how it came down, how the milk squirted out all over the place. And so I often wore my hair in braids, two braids. And so I remember just being taken by the braid, brought to the main office. And Mrs. Macy and Mrs. Marcou, Mrs. Marcou was the principal, calling my mother. She had to come get me, bring me home. I got in big trouble because you don't talk about those things at school. So different than it is now. At least I hope so. That was life for me. I just didn't always know when to be quiet. And I thought breastfeeding was cool and it's normal, right? That's what boobs are for. But my very, very provincial, almost retired Miss Shull did not think so. She was not happy with me at all. Other things I remember were going skiing and my mother would go skiing every Wednesday. So apparently that was Tom's day off. And I think Wednesdays was senior citizen ski for free. And I don't know that anybody was a senior citizen yet, but I remember sometimes I had to go skiing and that would always be a blast. And so some kindergarten memories are just getting picked up from kindergarten and going to Pat's Peak, which is a local ski area about 20 minutes from Concord in a town called Hennick. And learning to ski, I had red skis with those old bindings. And, and I remember it. I just remember learning how to ride the chairlift and skiing down the hill. Little, I'm too young. And then going to Cannon and Wednesday ski days at Cannon. All of this lends itself to a really idyllic reality for me. In my observation, my whole life was fine. My big brother was a pain and would tease me sometimes, but nothing out of the ordinary for siblings. And then Jonathan and Johanna were adorable. I know there were a lot of work. And it was when I first began to notice that my mother was just so tired. And I look back on it now, she wasn't even 30. She had Ricky and me and Jonathan and Johanna. The first 
five or six years of my life were incredibly stable. Owning a home was a big thing. I know our house wasn't pretty, but room by room, we painted it, made it look nice. I had a bedroom. Ricky had a bedroom. When Jonathan and Johanna were born, Ricky ended up moving into my room. It was his room because the other bedroom was bigger. And we had two cribs in there, a crib for Jonathan, a crib for Johanna, and a bed for me. And it was that way sometimes. And then I also remember for a while, I had a bed. I had Johanna in her crib in with me. And Rick had Jonathan in his crib in with him. And so it was the boys and the girls. And, you know, there's a pretty significant age difference. Five years for me, you know, I was five and a half when Jonathan was born, which means Rick was eight and a half. So he had a lot of years where he was the only child for three and then just the older of one for five more. So, you know, I think sometimes that must have been a big adjustment for him. I don't know. I do know that I, I don't have strong memories of him being around all the time. I think he was out playing with his friends. We had this amazing neighborhood. And that's another piece I remember is always having people outside to play with all the time. We had all of the classic games and activities. We also lived right near the park. So in the winter, sledding and ice skating all day long. You know, you come home for lunch, you put your, your freezing cold snowsuit in the dryer, you eat your tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwich and hot cocoa, and then you go back outside. And then in the summer, you packed a lunch sometimes and you went to the pool. And back then, White's Park had this huge swimming pool. It wasn't deep, but it was a big pool and it would be packed with kids. Not packed with cars. People didn't drive places. Concord is a neighborhood, a neighborhood town, and every neighborhood has a park, and every park has a pool. And so you could walk, pretty much walk or ride your bike to a public swimming pool anywhere. And it remains that way now. We would go to the swim in the morning from nine to noon, that pool was open, and there would be swimming lessons and then free swim. And then from 12 to 1, the pool was closed. There was a sun porch, and we'd spread our towels out and we'd eat our lunch. And then at one o'clock, the pool opened again, and we had money for the ice cream truck, and we'd stay until five. The pool closed at five and that's when you went home and you had dinner. And if it was super hot, you went back to the pool because it was open in the evenings from six to eight. The days seem to stretch out forever. And, you know, that's how it is for kids. You don't have such an understanding of time. It isn't that you don't understand time, but there's a perspective you don't have as a little child. Your life is just your little balloon. You're not comparing it to anything else. I remember one of my favorite things growing up was meeting the park instructors and the lifeguards at the park. They, you know, the playground leaders would, would play games and create activities. There was a peanut carnival and a citywide swim meet. There were all of these activities that happened summer after summer. And really, I probably only took part in them six or seven summers, you know, at the most until I was a teenager. But boy, it seemed like a hundred summers and a hundred winters with all of these activities. As I got older in elementary school, I remember I had like an eczema, like an itchy thing, and I itch and scratch and itch and scratch. That's how I remember most of first grade. And it embarrassed me because I had all this dry skin on the inside of my thighs. As I said, we wore dresses to school. So if you wore knee socks, you had a dress and knee socks and underpants, and that was it. Nowadays, you know, Molly and Gracie always wore a pair of shorts if they were wearing a dress, because that way you don't have to worry about anyone seeing your underwear and all of that. And it wasn't that way, and I was always so uncomfortable. I hated the feeling of the wooden seat against my bare legs. So I'd want to wear tights as much as possible. I remember specifically in first grade, we were doing some words, and I knew that I knew a word said morning, and I knew another one said around. And I remember my teacher sort of wondering, how do you know that word? And I'm like, I don't know. I just know it. I was one of those kids that learned, that just knew how to read. Molly was that way too. Reading just came to me. I didn't really need to be taught. Spelling, you know, with phonics and all, that was a bit different, but word recognition was fine for me. And I loved reading. I loved it. And I think that a lot of that comes from Tom. I was read to, and my mother read to me, and my Nana Quimby read to me, and my Grams Butterfield read to me all the time. That was a very, very strong, happy childhood memory for me. We also spent a lot of time at Remy and Grampy Higgins's house. And for a long time, they lived in West Concord on 2nd Street over by the golf course there. And then they moved close by walking distance. It's called Mason Court, and it's right off of Jackson Street. 
my great-grandparents owned a home there. So it was my Grammy Higgins's mother, Grammy Whitehead. And when they died, Grammy and Grampy moved into that. So that was walking distance. So I would go visit a lot and spend time there. She was a very rigid, strict, stuck in tradition, actually extremely racist and judgmental human being. I think she did the best she could, but she was not easy for me to be around because I was much too open-minded and free thinking. And she would get incredibly angry with me if I asked her too many questions. <laughs> and you know me, I was asking questions all the time, but she was a wonderful painter. If you've watched my earlier podcast episodes, I had a big farmhouse picture behind me in a, in a whole season. And she painted that. She did a mural. They had a mural on the wall of their living room instead of wallpaper. So she was incredibly creative. I think she had a lot of creative energy to let out. I don't know that she always could. But she was very traditional in the sense that she didn't like that my mother had any life outside of my mom. She thought my mother's whole job should be sort of waiting hand and foot on my dad and then on my brother, Rick. I think in looking at Ricky growing up, he was indoctrinated into the men shall, men shall sit in thy recliner, women shall feed you mentality. It doesn't work for me. I didn't always enjoy going there as much as I did Graham's Butterfield or, or anywhere else. But I will say that in my early years, I had grandparents and great-grandparents on both sides of my family. The other thing that stands out for me is my mother's parents, my grampy, my Peppo, so Grampy Bond and Graham's Butterfield were once married. That's Bertha and Walter. And they were married and they had my mom and Uncle Jimmy and Uncle Connie. And then they divorced. And so then my Grams married Grampy Max and had Michelle. And my Peppo married Grammy Carolyn and had Walter and Nathan. So that's a divorce. And, and I don't think that their divorce was necessarily friendly or easy for anybody. But I do know that it never interfered with our family. Any holiday that was like Christmas Eve was at our house always. And everybody came. Grams and Max came with Michelle. Peppo and Grammy Carolyn came with Walter and Nathan. All the aunts and uncles and cousins came. So I didn't have a sense that divorce was necessarily a bad thing. It was just a part of my reality. I look at any family and we all have our ups and downs and things that we do right and wrong. And I will say that love of family first and your children first has stayed with our family always. My uncle Walter, who's younger than me, his first wife, Sheila. So Sheila is mom to Aubrey and Shinoa. So she, I call her Auntie Sheila, even though she's younger than me. But, you know, she's a part of our family still. And that was Walter's first wife. He has a different wife now. But kids come first and she's as much a, much a piece of our family as ever. And I think that's a very positive thing I have from my childhood is that that family sometimes needs to transcend small things that divide us. We have a family that does that well. I also grew up knowing that if you needed something, that your family would and should be there for you. Now, I don't have a lot of relatives on Norm Higgins' side. He was an only child and didn't have lots of cousins and such. My biggest Higgins memories for relatives are Uncle Ray and Aunt Florence, who lived in Allenstown. They lived right behind Gosson's Pharmacy up on this hill, and they had a swimming pool in the front yard. And we would go, go there in the summer and swim. Oh, my gosh, hours and hours. You know, and again, this was just such a, it was my family. These were my cousins and they had seven children, one girl and six boys. <laughs> and we spent hours there. My mother and Aunt Florence got along really well. That's really where I also honed a lot of my swimming skills was there. They had a diving board and I remember being afraid to jump off. Why am I sharing all of these details that probably mean nothing to anyone listening? Because from 1963 until I would say 1971 and maybe 72, my life was fine. You know, I, I woke up only with the expectation of what will I be doing today? And will it be a school day? And is it a home day? What relatives will I see? Where might I go? You know, my Grammy Higgins took Ricky and I camping and I thought we went hours away and it was only in Loudoun on Route 106, Cascade Park. I remember thinking I was in the middle of nowhere and it was, you know, a 10 minute drive to my house, but it seemed like so far away. You know, I, I just was given such wonderful experiences. We did not have a lot of money. So vacations for us were primarily day trips where 
we'd have a beach day. We'd have to go to Storyland or the Polar Caves, you know, one of those kinds of things. I never, ever, ever went on an airplane or took a vacation out of state. We just didn't. We didn't have a lot of money. I don't look back on that in a bad way. Not everybody went to Disney World and Disneyland back then. It wasn't such a part of life as it is now. And then home entertainment, you know, TV channels were seven or eight channels. The Wizard of Oz was on once a year. So everyone watched it and, and the ads would come on TV, the commercials that it's coming, it's coming. And, you know, we'd have neighborhood parties where we'd all watch it. And, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable planning to go into things that now we just you know, find one of your 9,000 channels and you watch any movie anytime you want. It was just very, very different. Another thing I remember very succinctly about my early childhood was my relationship to church. So I've never been super religious in the sense that I didn't just accept religious dogma as truth because some religious founder said it. I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. I believe in all the prophets. And even as a little girl, I was intrigued with and curious about God. And I never, ever didn't believe in him. We went to St. Paul's Church. And I remember before Jonathan and Johanna were born, not really regularly, I remember going a lot to St. Paul's. I don't remember who the minister was, but I do remember Uncle Fred. And he was like a curator. He helped the ministers and the rectors and everything. I remember Mr. Wood because he was the choir director and I had Sunday school teachers. There used to be a big building, which has since burned down. And that's where our Sunday school classes would be. And my first experience was with death with somebody dying was somebody that was in one of my Sunday school classes. And I was maybe four or five and I don't have a strong memory of it. I just know that suddenly she wasn't there anymore. And that my mother had told me that she had died. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Well, when will I see her again? When will she not be dead anymore? You know, and that, that isn't how death works. It's a very permanent thing. I had a hard time managing infinity and time. If you couldn't define it, if there's a start and a finish, then there has to be a before and an after. And if there's a before and an after and that one ends, then there has to be another before and another after after that. And so I could get myself all worked up over the passage of time and how to understand it. And so knowing that she would never come back, I didn't know how to understand it. My mother also explained that her soul was eternal. That was still alive and would live forever. Where, where is it? You know, and where is heaven? And there was a little kid, you want a physical, you want something to picture in your head. And that was the first time that I had a real, what I call now a God dream. And so in my dream, I met this man with a beard, a white beard, and what I call the Cash Temple hat. I know now it was called a fez or a turban. And it was on his head and it was green. And he had this white beard and he wore these long robes. And he comforted me. He said not to worry about my friend, that she was fine, that he was proud of me and loved what I was doing. I woke up saying, mommy, I met God. He has a long white beard and, and he wears a Cash Temple hat. So she looked at me just kind of funny. And then I went to church and we had this man in church named Ozzy Strong. And he did not have a long white beard, but he had white, white hair. And he was in the Bektash Temple. I was, once saw him with the Bektash Temple hat. So I thought, oh my gosh, that's God. I was scared to death of this man. And nothing in my dreams scared me, but I really thought that I had dreamed about God. And that stayed with me for a long time. Other strong memories of church are finally joining the junior choir and youth group in third grade. So we had stopped going. Jonathan and Johanna were born when I was in kindergarten and first grade. And church just sort of stopped for us. And I missed it. Being a social person, it was just something that I liked. Keep in mind, I would go home from school and I was home. Sometimes I had dance lessons. I, I remember taking like a, like a dance class at the YMCA. Things here and there, but life wasn't like it is now. You went home and you put play clothes on and you played outside. And so first and second grade for me are just major, major neighborhood memories. Playing outside with Jackie and Jill, playing outside with Terry and Michelle, fighting with Johnny and Bobby, 
you know, just always, always these memories of all the things that we played. Another strong memory I have, and I think I was probably six, is I took Andrea, my little next door neighbor, to White's Park. And we had to cross White Street to get there. A tree had been struck by lightning. And I wanted her to see it. And so I took her up there. And she was very nervous about it. I'm not supposed to cross the street. I don't want my mother to be mad. And I'm like, the tree is right here. So I ran across the street and we're showing her the tree. Their mother came. She was furious and screamed and yelled. I got, oh my God, I was petrified. I got so much trouble and I went home. And she and my mother got in a bit of an argument because she was mad at me and really yelled at me for taking Andrea up there and really yelled at my mother. And we didn't get along super well with that consistently with all of our neighbors. And that was a real, a real divisive memory. And what I remember about it, she told me that God didn't love me. You know, like I was unlovable or something like this. And I just believed her. I believed her, like, what's wrong with me that God wouldn't love me? I, you know, I think she was afraid because her little girl got taken up to the park. I don't know the other side of it. I just know that for years, I believed her. I believed that I was somehow intrinsically there. And I was willing to sort of intuit and take in those judgments from a young, young age. And I think looking back now, I'm probably what we now identify as an empath, somebody that can just take in the feelings of others and experience them. You know, I, I think I've struggled with boundaries since day one. You know, it wasn't my job to prove to my next door neighbor's mother that I was a good person. I should have believed I was a good person. It was just hard for me. And my mother reassured me, I'm sure, but it was just, it was just difficult. Sometimes I will still say, you know, you can have 50 compliments and the one insult will keep you up all night. I find that to be so true of myself all the way through life. And sometimes that's not a bad thing, but when you're a little girl, you need to learn to let the insults go. So second grade was a turning point year for me as well. So first grade, I had a, a nice young teacher who sort of liked me and, and I was able to be expressive. Second grade, I had Mrs. Rice. And she was another one that she taught for five or six years after, after I had her, but she was older and unbelievably rigid and strict. And she was another one that believed that little girls should just be quiet. But excuse rambunctious behavior in boys because they were boys and it was expected, but it wasn't expected of me. And this is where I met and became really good friends with Maura Spellman. She's my good, good friend that died at age 10 of cancer. She and I would get in trouble all the time. And she and I also liked to wear pants. We would get sent home. Our mothers would be called. Maura's mother was better at standing up for her than my mother was. But Mrs. Rice was insistent that we really should be wearing dresses, that little girls did not wear pants. You know, I look back on it now, like, how do you enforce that? That's just so archaic. But it wasn't archaic. It was a time period that was ending and new times were coming. And little girls wearing pants was incredibly new. Movie stars wearing pants was new. It was just, it was just something coming along that, that hadn't been common in prior generations. I have two strong memories from second grade. One is that I wore a lederhosen to school, which is a leather suede pair of shorts with suspenders, a little green cap with a feather. And so I got it from Tom, my biological dad. It's authentic lederhosen. I wish I, wish I still had it. I think it disappeared in the attic when we sold the house. So sad. It was beautiful. And I wore it to school for show and tell. And when I was done with show and tell, I sat down and Mrs. Rice said, well, you need to change back into your outfit. And I said, I didn't bring it outfit. I'm going to wear this today. And she called my mother and my mother, of course, didn't have a car. My dad had taken the car to work. So I had to walk home. I walked home in the middle of the school day because my mother had two little babies and I had to change my clothes and walk back to school. And I wanted to stay home, but I wasn't allowed. So that's a big memory that comes back to me from second grade. Another one is we were being dismissed from school and I was getting picked on behind me. I think it was Jill, Jill Dore or somebody. Jill was involved and I kept getting nudged and I got really upset and frustrated so I turned around and kicked with my foot and I kicked Jill's folder and all of her papers flew all over the place. And so, of course, I had to step out of line and help. So I got in trouble. I got sent into the classroom and I was insistent that it wasn't my fault, that I was just fighting back. 
And of course, that didn't matter at the time. So Mrs. Rice left me in the classroom and I had a dance lesson. I knew my mother would be furious if I missed it. So I left. I climbed up that fire escape and walked right down the fire escape and ran home. The next day, of course, I forgot all about it. By then, I go to school the next day and I'm at, at my cubby and I'm sitting there putting my shoes on and I have them in my hands. And I, all of a sudden I see Mrs. Rice's legs in front of me and I look up at her and she's like, is there something, you know, you need to do or something you need to tell me? And I'm like, what? I don't, what? And I didn't know what she meant. She said something that you did. So I had written on a desk. So I'm like, do you mean the writing on the desk? Which of course isn't what she meant. <laughs> so I got in trouble for that as well. And she went, no, you left yesterday. And then I remembered. So I remember I had my shoes in my hand and I like clunked them to my head like, oh no. So she brought me down to the office and the phone was on the wall. It was a black phone that you dialed. She's like, what is your phone number? So I knew that my mother was home, but I knew that Minnie across the street would not be home. So I gave the neighbor's phone number (laughs) and she called. And of course it rang and rang and rang. And there was no such thing as an answering machine back then. And so I had to sit at the back of the room and just do worksheets. And I couldn't go off for recess and I couldn't talk to anybody. My desk faced away. The only time my desk could turn around would be when there was like a lesson on the chalkboard. My friend Maura was in trouble for something as well. So the two of us were at the back of the room together. So it wasn't really a punishment at all. I had all this fun with Maura. (laughs) You know, a few days went by, a couple of weeks, and it was parent-teacher conferences. And I remember we got left at home. So I don't know how that happened because it was second grade, but my mom and dad walked to my parent-teacher conference. And I was sitting on the side porch of our house with Rick. And I think maybe like Becky Andrews or somebody across the street babysat. Yeah, that was how it was. And I knew I was in a heap of trouble because they were going to go there and they were going to hear about me leaving school and all this. So I, I got spankings for that. I got in big trouble. My parents came home and I, oh, is there something you want to tell me? And I'm like, well, you already know. It was just one of the me in my mouth. And so, you know, I got in trouble for that. Cried and cried and cried. I got a spanking, you know, over the knee spanking. And it was never a hard spanking, but it was embarrassing and humiliating. And that was how I remembered second grade. It was just a difficult time for me. But again, Normal, typical little kid times where you get in trouble for talking during spelling test or, you know, you get to school late. I remember walking to school with Bobby Zeno once and we went through the park and it was pouring rain. We looked at all this cool stuff. I had a blast. We came to school with pockets full of salamanders and rocks and, and I got in huge trouble for being late. And I remember her saying to me, I expect it from him, not from you. Well, okay, but we're neighbors and we're both kids and none of that made sense to me. So this was Dewey School, which ended at third grade. So in third grade, I had this nice young teacher again, Daisy Day, Mrs. Day. Oh, I loved Mrs. Day. In the classroom, the third grade wasn't big enough for two full classrooms. So Mrs. Palmer had like, you know, a much larger number of kids than Mrs. Day. We were in a room that is now the superintendent's office in Dewey School. It was this cute little room upstairs above the main office. And so I had Mrs. Day and, and it was two rows of desks that followed the curve of the room. And her desk was in the hallway. And the hallway was big and open then. And I do remember that we shared a lot of subjects with Mrs. Palmer's class. And so my friend Maura was in Mrs. Palmer's class and I was in Mrs. Day's class. And so whenever there were group activities, I loved, loved, loved spending my time with Maura. This is a time that I increased my friendship with Suzanne. So my best, best friend growing up was Suzanne Ward. And we met in kindergarten. We actually had met at preschool, at you know Sunday school. And then when kindergarten registration came, we jumped up and down. We were so happy to see each other. And so I used to go over there and play all the time or Suzanne would come to our house and play. And oh, such good memories. Suzanne lived on Fruit Street and there was a pond. It's still there, Thayer Pond. And it didn't have houses around it then. So we would go over there with a the canoe. We put big rubber boots on and walk around in the pond. It wasn't super deep. So much fun. Just hours spent in the woods, you know, following the stream and building forts. Oftentimes Anna Fine would come. Anna is a good friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago. Cindy Pendleton would come and play with us. Sarah Eberhardt. 
Noni Flanagan. Oh my gosh. It's a whole group of people, hours and hours in the woods, just reveling in nature. Those are my memories of those years, those primary elementary school years. Third grade, I remember succinctly, wanted to have a play date with Suzanne on a Monday afternoon. And she said, I can't, I have choir practice. I'm like, choir. So I asked my mother, can I join the choir? And so I joined the junior choir at St. Paul's Church. And that was really, truly life-saving for me. When I think about what was around the corner for me, child abuse-wise, and my relationship with church really truly saved me. I could always think of something bigger that I couldn't see as having my back and protection. I used to talk to God a lot, you know, or the universe or whatever it is as a child, oftentimes. I now had a whole group of friends that were church-related friends, Becky and Susan Black. Anna was there. Suzanne was there. So we had this whole group, whole group of friends that sang in the choir. And every Sunday, the junior choir would have a song to sing. And I remembered so many of them. And across the nave, right above the altar, was the adult choir. A lot of the services sung, and we would sing. We got to march in. We'd follow the minister and the acolytes. And we'd march in and take our seats. The whole church service was just such a ceremonial, wonderful thing. I loved all of it. And I would spend a lot of the service just looking around. There's a beautiful carving of the Last Supper, Jesus's Last Supper, and all the disciples up behind the, the altar. And I would stare at it and just wonder what was life like back then. And listening to the, the ministers, we had wonderful preachers. Father Hamilton is probably the one I remember most clearly. And then Father Henry and Father Puglis. So junior choir for me was third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And then once you were, you know, 13, once you went into high school, actually eighth grade, you were too old for the junior choir now. And then you had to move into the adult choir. And this was a time when, you know, most everyone left the church, like didn't come to church anymore. I sang in the adult choir for one year. I was the only one and I didn't like the music. It was very, very grown up <laughs> and I just didn't feel grown up enough. And I was an altar girl for a year. In my church, they were called acolytes. But again, I was the only one. Like I really missed my friends. I missed that church community. The other thing I did was I joined a youth group. Since I was in the choir, I was at church every Sunday. And so there would be Sunday school classes, but then youth group. And that was so fun. We did so many activities. And the youth group, a woman named Grace and a guy named Fred, Grace and Fred, and they ended up dating and getting married, which of course we thought was so scandalous at the time. But they worked hard and did a lot of things for us. And we did fundraisers and we did community service. We did overnights. I remember one of my worst asthma attacks, the worst one, we went on a hayride. We're going to camp out in a barn. And I am like anaphylactically allergic to hay and horses. You know, no cell phones then. You have to call a landline. I really started to struggle and I had to get brought home and inhalers hadn't been invented yet. And some of my, some of my <laughs> biggest asthma attacks were field trips when I was allergic to something. But I look back now, I get up on a Sunday morning. Now this is something else that's incredibly different. I had this chaotic household and some of my church memories go into when the abuse started, but I would get up and get myself dressed and I would eat breakfast and I was on my own. My mother would be up a lot, but house hadn't been going in and I'd put on a dress and everything. And more often than not, I would walk to church at age eight and age nine because my mother had little babies. She'd have to pile them into the car. It was a major effort. If my father were awake, she could leave them home. She could just leave and drive me and come back. And then when church was over, my mother was taking a class to be an operating room technician, a surgical assistant. And she would be sitting out there and Jonathan and Johanna would be in the back seat playing with toys. You know, the car seats didn't really, weren't really around then. I'd get in the car at noon and she'd sometimes to go for a drive. And so church, Sunday mornings and Monday afternoons, and then youth group was Thursday afternoons. So three days a week, I spent this huge, significant amount of time at church. And I really developed a community there. There was a man named Mr. Milliken and his granddaughter, Grace, actually did preschool and elementary school by Grace. Grace, And there were two or three times when I was upset about something, I don't know what. And he was, the, he was just the first one to offer comfort and an explanation. He explained to me what prejudice meant when you prejudge someone. 
what I'm sharing right now is that I came into what would be some dark, dark years of my life with some wonderful preparation. I, I was loved. I truly was loved. And while I, while there was an undertoad, my favorite word, of anxiety and trepidation in my house, none of it was obvious enough for me to really see and understand. I knew that mentioning Uncle Tom made my dad angry. And so I learned very quickly that's something I should keep to myself. So children learning to keep secrets for protection is a red flag that a child cannot identify also. But was there malice on my mother's part? No, of course not. I think my mother was, you know, she had me at 21. So when I was five, she was just 26. You know, like really, really just very young and very unprepared herself for all that she was now in charge of. I imagine sometimes that must've been incredibly difficult. But I do know that I had this wonderful, wonderful, you know, first six or seven years of life. I was as prissy as they come, but I also loved to climb trees and dig in the dirt and run around. And so in the morning, my little morning routine, you know, brush your hair and be pretty. My mother would dress me and I would step into the dress and put my arms in. <laughs> I remember when I watched Downton Abbey TV show and you know, the rich people get dressed and undressed by their assistants, their maids. And I, and I thought, oh God, that was me, my poor mother. You can button me up now. You know, I had this very, very sort of prissy little princessy lifestyle. But I also remember that I made my bed every day. I didn't come down to breakfast until my bed was made. That was just part of the routine. It's the first thing you did. You set your room in order. And I think some of these housekeeping tasks existed back when people had far less material things. So what you had mattered more. And a clean house was difficult to keep. Critters, environments, and that kind of thing, because life was just so much more closely related to nature. My mother swept him off the floor every night. But she grew up, spent a part of her childhood in a house with a dirt floor kitchen. So you had to sweep. Dirt was everywhere. You swept them up every night. That's how you kept the rest of the house clean. So, you know, that's a routine that my mother continued all the way through. <laughs> I do not follow that routine. <laughs> I sweep when I see lots of crumbs on the floor. You know, when I think of birth and then cousins and family members and Christmas holidays and kids my age that I'm related to, and then preschool and kindergarten and really learning to follow a structure and be in school and how hard that was. And then first, second, and third grade and all that I learned. And I will say I loved learning, but the memories that stand out for me in each grade have more to do with what you do with what you learn than memorizing themselves. And I loved, even back then, I didn't really care for math. It required too much focus, but I loved science. I loved learning about plant biology and nature. I loved learning all about that. I gave an oral report in second grade on conservation. And I remember having little note cards. I was seven little note cards and I did this oral report. And one of my neighbors, Marilyn Frazier, she was a second grade teacher. I had her for social studies. So it was her class I did the report in. And I remember her coming over to tell my mother how amazing my report had been. And I had pictures. Now I have some pictures to show when I showed these pictures. I loved oral presentations, the chance to stand in front of people and talk. It was like the best thing ever. Some of my biggest third grade memories would be music class and art class. I remember we paper mache over light bulbs and made, you know, a partridge in a pear tree. And it was a big bulletin board and all our paper mache light bulbs were the pears that hung in the tree. I don't remember that. I remember Mrs. Kennedy was this older woman and she was a substitute teacher and she would come in and we loved Mrs. Kennedy. You know, you didn't want to have a substitute. Certain kids didn't behave very well, which is classic, but I loved her. She's a big part of it as well. And, you know, I really, my Dewey School memories are only happy. I think the undercurrent and the family dynamics with all of my relatives and, and my abuser having access to me started to increase when I was in third grade. And, you know, these are things I couldn't predict. I didn't even know that child abuse existed. When I look back on it now, like with anything, it's like you look back on something and so many things are clear. My final really big memory of third grade and in that part of elementary school, the last day of school, and I, Suzanne Ward came over 
And I wore a long dress. I always dressed up on the last day of school and I wore this beautiful long dress to school. So I was walking home or maybe I wore my first day of school dress. Sometimes I did that. Clothing for school was a huge, huge, exciting thing. I was a Sears catalog girl. You know, we didn't have the money to go to those fancy stores, although we did go to the youth center sometimes on Main Street. So I remember walking home from Dewey School the last day of school and I cried and cried. Oh, I sobbed. I couldn't stop crying because I knew I wouldn't see Mrs. Day again. Fourth grade was a completely different building. It wasn't going to be the same. And I remember Molly, when second grade ended for her, she was going to a new building and the teacher that she had wasn't going to be teaching anymore. And she cried for like two days. And I remember Gracie and Kenny couldn't wrap it. Like, why are you so sad? Oh my God, I totally got it. It brought me right back. It was just that sense of permanence and change. And Molly was freaked out by these things too. She knew too much. And I think sometimes I knew too much. I understood enough intellectually that I knew things that I wasn't emotionally able to handle. And that was Molly. The bad side of that is sometimes it blocks common sense. I was very gullible and so was Molly. That was one of my last big memories. Another huge for me in elementary school was second grade. Coming home on the first day of school in my green dress with the white polka dots, which I remember. Big red bow, little skirt. My mother looking at me and my face was all swollen. I didn't feel good. And I had the mumps. You know, kids get vaccinations for these now, but we didn't. We all got chicken pox. We all got mumps. We all got measles. If one person had them, you try to get everyone sick so everyone would have the mumps together. The neighborhood would rally and help and mums would take turns caring for the sick kids. Then you were immune to them after that. Some of these diseases you didn't want to get as adults. To get them in your childhood was better. They don't even exist now. I mean, they do, but you can get vaccinated and not get these horrible, horrible illnesses. So I missed the first two weeks of second grade with horrible mumps. Mumps, so you, you get swollen, swollen glands, massively swollen. Mumps can be fatal for adult males, can be very, very, very dangerous. And so I remember my my dad had not yet had them. And so I had to be sort of isolated from everybody. And I just felt terrible. It didn't matter to me. I just stayed in bed. I felt awful. But I remember going to school and everybody else had been there, you know, for two weeks. And I had my second day of school dress on. And I remember there was my empty desk and, and I had got all my books and all the makeup work, worksheet after worksheet. But my mother sat and worked with me and I, I got all that work done and I caught right up. And Mrs. Rice was another teacher that didn't believe that I could actually do what I was doing. She thought my mother must be reading the words or doing the work for me. And I remember wanting to read Charlotte's Web. Mrs. Rice saying, no, she, she can't read that book. It's too difficult. And my mother took the book off the shelf and put it in front of me and said, read this page. And I read the page. And it was just one of those things. Such a consistent feeling for me in my life is, is having to prove myself. I must give off a vibe that I'm ditzy or fluffy or wackadoo or whatever. To this day, people that know me often are amazed at what I know. And it's like, why do I appear stupid? Like, why wouldn't you think I know what I'm talking about? You know, I oftentimes feel very, very disrespected that way. I don't know if that's a side effect of the abuse or if it's a personality trait that lends myself to needing approval from others. I do know that people like me who are gullible, who are empathic and feel things, who want very much to please, I was a people pleaser from day one, are oftentimes targets for abusers because we're easily manipulated. I want to make people happy, so I'll do what they say. This has followed me throughout my life. It is such a huge piece of my personality where I get sucked into helping somebody at huge detriment to myself or my goals or what I want to do. I mean, and it's, it's current. I have things in my life in the last two or three years that completely gutted where I, where I thought I was going, what direction I thought I was moving in. So these are things that come up for me when I think of the first, first years of my life. Final thing that I'll talk about will be my relationship with my mother. So I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. My father worked full-time. And he lived classic, come home. My mother would greet him at the door with a cocktail. Although we weren't a big drinking family, but especially after 
my parents divorced. But I remember he would come home and we would eat dinner and then he would go watch TV and my mother would clean the kitchen and Ricky and I would play or Amazon would do homework. Like it's very structured life. But, but my relationship with my mother was was very, very solid. She read to me. She took me places, went to the library. I remember that. I was in a parade. This came to church. There was a Christmas parade, a Santa parade. And it started in a store called Brits, which is in downtown Concord, which is where the Burlington Coat Factory is now. I was on a float and I can remember going there at night to practice the parade. We had something we had to do. And they had a breakfast with Santa at Brits. And so my mother brought me to breakfast and buying an Easter dress from when I was little, 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 you know, Easter was such a big thing. And, and she read to me, oh, hours and hours of reading books. And there was an illustrator named Tasha Tudor and she lived in New Hampshire. She's world famous, an unbelievable illustrator of children's books. I have original books of hers on my bookshelf at home now. And I just remember my mother really instilling in me a love of learning and a love of reading. I do remember as well when Jonathan and Johanna were born and they were maybe one and two. So, you know, I would be seven or eight years old, little primary grades, and I would read to them hours and hours of reading little children's books to them and reading the Winnie the Pooh books. And my mother and I would memorize them. So my mother would read these poems with me, these Winnie the Pooh poems, and one about James, James, Morris, and Morris, and one about King Don not being a good man, and all these beautiful, beautiful poetry excerpts written by A.A. A. Mills, who wrote Winnie the Pooh. We, we read all the Winnie the Pooh books. There weren't Winnie the Pooh stuffed animals then, or Winnie the Pooh TV shows. All of that came along with, with the advent of, you know, cartoon movies and the animated shows and things like this. So it was all in my imagination, but I did love it. I loved it so much. And I was very, very needy, emotionally needy. And my great-grandmother, Nana Quimby, played a big role in that for me as well. She would often rub my back when I went to sleep. She would come and help my mother. And she was alive until I was seven. She died just before Johanna was born. And so my mom had needed a lot of help after Jonathan came. And then she was pregnant with Johanna. And my Nana Quimby would come and help quite a bit. As my mother grew Johanna in her belly, so that was me first grade, almost seven. That was when things in the house were noticeably bad. And I have a big, big memory and, and feeling so protective of my mother, of a fight between my mother and father. And my mother threw a salt shaker across the room and it hit my dad in the head and cut him above the eyebrow. And the sight of blood was horrifying. And there was a huge fight. My mother grabbed Jonathan and she has her big belly and she was wearing this Icelandic sweater. And she grabbed me and I put a coat on and went and sat on a bench at White's Park. And she cried and cried and it was dark out and cold and I was petrified. And I remember just thinking, that my whole life revolved around my mother and may she never leave me and having this really panicked feeling. And if I have to say, I remember the first time of feeling clearly panicked, it would be then. And I didn't know what I was afraid of, but I knew that whatever was going on with my mom and dad, things were bubbling up and things were getting unsettled. And that was before Johanna was born. And so I can't imagine what it was like for my mother after she arrived. That would have been bad. The other thing my mother did for me was mental health days. Let me stay home from school just because. And those were incredibly important days to me because, you know, emotionally, I just think sometimes life got to be too much for me, even at a young, young age. And a day home was often the best thing ever. I had a nanny, Nana Potter, and she babysat Jonathan and Johanna. It was wonderful. This white-haired woman. I would love staying home from school when she was around because I loved her and she was motherly and I would help her with Jonathan and Johanna or Jonathan's. As hyper as the day is learned, he just could not stay still. I remember in those years, just having this incredible strong need for my mother and not understanding why. And I just think I was very intuitive and very tuned in to the undercurrent of stress. Now, keep in mind, my mother had a very ongoing and consistent relationship with the man who was my biological father. So there wouldn't have been room in her heart for that. If things are okay at home. You know, it's easy for me to judge my mother, but the number of people in the world that have a very similar situation to me is far too big to say my family is a bad family. 
<laughs> Every family has needs, but my reality is all of this was going on around me and all I could feel was the emotion that came from it. I didn't understand my relationship with Tom or my mother's relationship with him. I didn't understand the tension coming from my dad or the tension between my mother and father. I just knew my little reality and where I fit in. So the summer after third grade and before going into fourth is probably the last summer I remember as being kind of okay. I had started playing violin, but I didn't do summer school violin yet. It was just the summer of playing, going to the park, going to the beach, you know, just doing all those fun things. I will say my mother was very, very good at packing up the car and loading us into it to go to Elmbrook or to go to Lake Sunapee or to go to Bear Brook or to go to the ocean. And, you know, Jonathan and Johanna were so little and she did it anyway. And oftentimes I would bring a friend and I think sometimes the friend made it easier on my mother because, you know, we would entertain the little kids. And we did this all the time. And she had a circle of friends that also had children. One of her best friends was Linda, Linda Kennison. So we would go over to their house. They lived on West Street and Carly and Chrissy and Kelly, three daughters. We'd all play together. They had this huge backyard. I have birthday pictures, such good, good, good times. And my mother made sure that all those normal things happened, that what was supposed to happen did. The birthday parties and the Easter baskets, all of those things were connected to how my mother my mother treated me and treated our family. You know, I never got a sense of a favorite. I knew that I connected really strongly with my mother and I knew that my brother Rick connected strongly with my dad and with Grammy and Grampy Higgins. He went to their house a lot, especially when they moved within walking distance. He would come home from school and say, I'm going to Grammy's and he would go there. And I think it's because he was king of the hill there. There were no little sisters and brothers to compete with. It's easy for me. Back then I used to be a bit judgy, like he didn't take part in, in doing much. But I imagine the house is pretty loud and he got some quiet time over there and, you know, good for him. He was putting his oxygen mask on at a very young age, my big brother. <laughs> that was that. So I'll end here. This episode really was meant to sort of lay the framework for what would happen next. I hope that this episode was interesting enough. Those of you that are my age, you got a little walk down memory lane. Those of you who are much younger than me, I'm sorry that you never got to watch the TV show Family Affair and have a Buffy and Jody lunchbox with a thermos. <laughs> I did. The last of the real idyllic times before, before the civil unrest really, really permeated everyday life for everybody. Life carried on like that. So as always, I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate it. This will air in mid-November, my least favorite time of year. So I hope if you live in a sunny, warm place that you'll look up at the sun and say, hey, send some warm weather to Barb. <laughs> Although it's going to be 75 all weekend here, so I can't complain. It's very warm for November. Daylight savings ends this week, so it will be very dark from here on out. I don't like that so much, but it's a part of, it's a part of my reality. So thank you for listening. Do something good for yourself before you do something good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.